This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. And welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, insights on leadership, mindset, and thriving on disruption. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. For over 25 years, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect the research to practice, engaging authors and academics who, in their research and studies, contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. This show connects research to practice by bringing together insights and perspectives, blended with an equal measure of practicality and reflection from an array of government leaders, thinkers, practitioners, and academics. How can the U.S. federal government rebuild its digital capabilities and truly transform how government does business? What is the difference between learning while doing and learning by doing? And how can government agencies become more adaptive and thrive on disruption? I will explore these questions and so much more with a host of thought leaders that I had the pleasure of interviewing this year on the Business of Government Hour. According to Jen Palka, former U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer within the Office of Management and Budget, the digital revolution played out differently inside government. Even as our expectations about the immediacy and accuracy of services have skyrocketed, the implementation of laws has become anything but easier. The famous slowness of bureaucracy is a key reason, but all too frequently what now widens the gap between policy intentions and actual outcomes is the messy task of implementation through digital technologies and the ways government makes working with technology uniquely complex. Jen joined me on the Business of Government Hour this year to discuss her new book, Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. Here's an excerpt of our conversation. So, Jen, what prompted you to write Recoding America? And who is the intended audience of the book? Well, I see a lot of positive changes happening in government. And I also see barriers to those changes scaling. And I think that a lot more people are going to have to understand how government really operates today um, and also how it could operate if, if we want the benefits of those different approaches. So, um, Maybe it's helpful to start with an example of what I mean by a different approach, because it really isn't just tech or code that I'm talking about here. Um, I tell the story in the book of the team that had to pick up the ball after healthcare.gov, the next big law that came down from Congress at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services was MACRA. MACRA was designed to pay doctors more for better quality care. And of course, the impetus behind it was that would improve the quality of care that Medicare patients got and reduce the cost. Um, But the doctors were so frustrated. And the only thing that they hated more than the systems that they used was the thought of having to use whole new systems that were also going to be confusing. And so they were threatening to leave the program, to not take Medicare patients in very high numbers, which would, of course, degrade the quality of care that patients were getting. And so this team really knew they had to do something differently. They had to make it easier for doctors. 
they were supposed to explain to doctors how this program would work. First choice you have to make as a doctor is, are you in a private practice or part of a group? And they are told by the policy team that there are nine different definitions of a group. Now, that's going to make things very difficult for them to understand, and it's also going to make the software that they would eventually build extremely complex and fragile. This team pushes back and says, we really need to simplify this. Uh, the line that uh, one of the teams says is, I understand it's complicated, but it has to make sense to a person. And they really negotiate um, the policy team and the delivery team. They don't get down to one definition of a group, but they do get down to two, which is much, much better um, and is going to make this much easier on doctors. Um, some doctors will be exempt from this program if they take very few Medicare patients. Well, the way that the policy team is interpreting the law, they're insisting that delivery team make all doctors go through the program for the first year, then determine if you're under the threshold for eligibility, and then exempt those doctors, which is technically the most accurate way to get the right people in the program, but going to be incredibly frustrating for those who have to adopt all new software, a whole new way of working, only to then be excused from it the following year, which they kind of already knew they would be. And this is a fight that this team wins. They, they uh, After much negotiation, uh, they convince the powers that be above them to let them exempt doctors based on the prior year's data. They end up fighting to ship software that really does make sense to a person. And when it launches, it's on, on time, it's under budget, and doctors find it so easy to use that they're actually confused. You know, the call center is braced for all these complaints, but instead they're getting calls from doctors saying, "I'm uh, this is so easy, I'm, it's scary. Like, I'm not sure if I'm on the right site. And they keep doctors from leaving the program, which is just really remarkable. And I, I think what this shows is it's not just sort of the coding of the site that went wrong with healthcare.gov and went right with MACRA. It's people doing what will honor Congress's intent instead of exactly what they were told to do by the letter of the law. And to do that, I think they had to make some smart decisions that others thought were really out of their lane, but they were doing it in the interests of the people that they were trying to serve. And that's the kind of thing that I want to draw people's attention to, because it does make government that makes sense to people. Mm, that's an excellent point. And your book, along with the anecdotes and the stories, the real life stories of, of how government works, or in some cases, unfortunately, how it doesn't work, you introduce concepts, Jen. And, and I'd like to talk about some of those concepts. And in particular, the, the difference between agile and waterfall as two distinctive software development methodologies. I was wondering if you could tell us what is agile and how does it differ from waterfall? And would you juxtapose, if you could, the key cultural differences between these two approaches? Yeah, I think it is very much a key concept. And I think people will initially hear that and think that I'm talking about agile software development versus waterfall software development. And that is true, but ultimately I'm talking about a waterfall structure and way of thinking that is much bigger than tech. Um, and in fact, I think the reason it's, we don't think of it as a waterfall outside of tech is it's really like the air we breathe. You know, it's if, if you're a fish in the water, you don't even know the water that you're in, right? Like the notion that all delivery teams are supposed to find all the requirements and fulfill all the requirements 
and not exercise their judgment and make these active design choices to simplify, that's the waterfall in in action. It's saying we are a very large hierarchy and at every step down in the hierarchy, the best thing to do is simply exactly what we've been told from the folks above. Um, And certainly in agile software development, that's not what happens. It's not sort of a one-way ticket um, from people at the top to people at the bottom where information flows down, um, requirements flow down, power flows down, insights flow down, and they don't flow back up. When we have good agile development, we have sort of a, a circle of build, measure, learn, where the policy people are in that cycle and actually contributing and learning from the what the people who are doing the implementation are learning. So. Agile is a good software development methodology, and I do think we should use it more, but I'm not sure that agile is necessarily the opposite of waterfall in the larger sense that I'm talking about. I think the opposite of waterfall in the larger sense is empowering public servants to make choices, design choices in particular, that result in government that makes sense to people. And that means we actually have to have conversation that goes back up the hierarchy in order to, as as Clay Shirky would say, in order to learn, he says the waterfall methodology amounts to a pledge by all parties not to learn anything during the actual work, whether it's software development or policy or operations, um, so many areas of government, we need to be learning while we do, act, do the work. And we need that learning to get back to the people who can make decisions and they need to be able to listen. Jen, really quickly, why does government culture undervalue the importance of policy implementation and what could be done about changing this culture? I think that we undervalue it because it's tied to status, to be honest. Um, I mentioned before the UK government service back in the day talked very explicitly about intellectuals and mechanicals and the intellectuals are more important in that system. Um, I think the people that we would call mechanicals are really, really important. And um, if we stop seeing them as lower status, we will value their work. So as we close, Jen, I was wondering what skills are most needed from your perspective when we talk about tech talent and government and why is digital literacy so important for policymakers? You know, I'm, I'm a little out there, um, on the digital literacy piece, I, of course, it would be great if all of our members of Congress understood how the internet works. But I actually think it's more important for them to shed this waterfall thinking than it is for them to understand, you know, something technical. Um, I, and I mean, it partly because I'm not that technical, right? Like, I think what they need to do is have the right people at the table when they're making decisions and listen to them. You don't need tech knowledge. You need to be able to borrow tech knowledge. But you, right now, most policymakers don't invite implementers or technologists to the table when they're thinking about what they actually want to write in a law or policy. They talk to them afterwards (laughs) when it's too late to change it. uh, And we've already created conditions under which it's going to be very hard to implement that technology. So, you know, digital digital literacy is nice. Um, changing who's at the table and who's in the conversation and making sure that whoever's at the bottom of the waterfall is actually speaking to the people at the top 
is a more critical change that I would like to see. And I think through that, you will get more digital literacy. Um, and that'll be just a really nice thing to have, but it is less important. That was an excerpt of my conversation with Jen Palka on Recoding America, pondering the question of why government is failing in the digital age and how we can do better. While it might seem counterintuitive, constantly performing does not improve our performance. The route to success is often not a straight line. Eduardo Bersinio, author of the new book, The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action, joined me earlier this year on the Business of Government Hour to discuss the problem of chronic performance, the constant attempt to get every task done as flawlessly as possible, and then some. That chronic performance, throwing more energy at tasks and problems, yet staying at the same level of effectiveness. Here's a portion of our conversation. When you when you pick the book up and it says the performance paradox, it, it begs the question, what is, in your mind, the performance paradox? And, and how does it, you mentioned chronic work. I'm, I'm just wondering, how does it, um, the, the concept of chronic work factor into this paradox? And what are some of the key implications of chronic performance? Yeah, so the performance paradox is a counterintuitive reality that if we focus only on performing, our performance suffers, our results go down. And so what does that mean? Well, the first, one thing that I learned, you know, in working with my mentor, Carol Dweck, and, and got the chance to work with um, the late Professor Anders Ericsson and other, other thought leaders and practitioners too, I realized that I was unclear between the difference between learning and performing. And, and that we can all really benefit from getting really clear about this. So a way to become clear about it is to get step out of our context and look at people who are fantastically skilled at what they do, who are world-class, um, for example, athletes in, in domains where performance can be objectively measured, where these people are, are just so good at what they do. And sometimes what we tend to think kind of vaguely, we have a sense that the reason somebody becomes fantastic at what they do is that they have spent a lot of time doing that thing that we see. Like if we see a fantastic tennis player, they're fantastic because they've spent 10,000 hours playing tennis. And if you look at the research, the research is clear that that's not true. The reason these fantastic performers get so skilled is that they spend a lot of time doing something very different from what we see. What we see is them performing in what I call the performance zone, which is, you know, when they're doing, you know, they're playing a championship match, they're trying to win. They're trying to focus on the things that they do best, trying to minimize mistakes. That's the performance zone. But so if they're having trouble with a particular move, they're going to avoid that move during that match. But then after the match, they'll go to their coach and say, coach, I have to work on this particular move that I was trying to avoid during the game. Now we have to do this. Like that's what we need to pay attention to. And that's a very different activity, which I call the learning zone. Um, which is when we leap into the unknown, when we do things that may or may not work, when we engage in activities that are designed for improvement, not designed for performance. Um, and both of these zones are critical. The performance zone is how we get things done. And it's a big way that we contribute to others and that we change the world. Uh, but we need to habituate and systematize both of these zones. And often most of us uh gravitate toward chronic performance, toward being in the performance zone all the time in our work and our lives, just trying our best, doing things as best as we know how, trying to minimize mistakes. And if, if that's all we're doing, 
uh, which is what chronic performance is, then we stagnate. It actually works when we are novices, when we're just getting started at something we're so bad. Like if we just try to do the activity, we'll get better. But once we become proficient, we'll stagnate. And then we'll, because we're working hard at the activity and not getting better, we tend to develop a fixed mindset, the belief that we can't improve further because we're trying hard and we're not getting better. And the, the, the reality is that we are just working hard in an ineffective way. We're hard, working hard at performing without engaging in activities that are designed for improvement. That's a great segue into sort of combining my next couple of questions, which was, you know, the effort to perform versus the effort to improve. And and how does it relate? You mentioned just now, Eduardo, the, the idea of a fixed mindset. And I was wondering if you could explain the difference between so-called fixed mindsets and a growth mindset. And to what extent, given what you've written in your book, is a growth mindset essential for overcoming uh, that the, the, the chronic performance uh, conundrum, if you will? Yeah. So to overcome the performance paradox conundrum, uh, we we need kind of four what I call cornerstones of change. And, and I'll mention what those are. But one of them is a growth mindset, which you just mentioned. That was something that was discovered by Carol Dweck, my mentor, Stanford professor in the 1980s. It's done a ton of research on it. And now like thousands of researchers have done um, research on growth mindset. And a growth mindset is the belief that people can change is the belief that our abilities and qualities are malleable. They're things that we can develop over time. So for example, if we think that a great leader is a great leader because they're natural leaders, that tends to reflect more of a fixed mindset, right? The reason people, somebody's great at something is because they're naturals at it rather than anybody can become a better leader, whether you're already a great leader or just starting out, you can improve further. That's a growth mindset. Or we might see kind of extroversion or introversion in fixed ways or in malleable ways in a fixed mindset or in a growth mindset or athleticism or the ability to work with numbers or with words. And we can see these different abilities as things that people either have or don't have. Intelligence is another example. We might see people as you know, their intelligence fixed at a certain level. That's a fixed mindset about intelligence versus anybody can become smarter. That would be a growth mindset about intelligence. And, and this belief that we can change is essential in order for us to engage in learning behaviors uh, that, that lead us to improvement. But it is also not sufficient. It is necessary, but not sufficient. Because if we believe that we can change, but we are not clear about how to change. We think that we just need to work hard at something and we'll get better from just executing. Uh, then we'll try hard, we'll fail, we won't get better, and then we'll develop more of a fixed mindset, right? I can't improve because I'm trying to improve and it's not working. And um, so the second thing that we need is not just to believe that we can change, but also understanding how to change and how to improve. And that's where the learning zone and the performance zone comes in. Third, we need a why, we need a reason to care, right? So if we if we work in government, we need to kind of connect and reconnect with uh, what, why do we care? Why is the work we do important? What, what difference does it make in other people's lives and in my life and in my colleagues' lives? Um, and so because we both the learning zone and the performance zone require effort, they require different forms of effort, to your point. In the performance zone, we're 
we're putting effort into the things as to to do them as best as we know how trying to minimize mistakes in the learning zone we're leaping beyond the known we're experimenting we're trying things that may or may not work we're soliciting feedback we're thinking about mistakes and talking about what we can learn from them and those are things that are different than just executing but they're both involve time and attention and so we need a reason why we care in order to engage in both and then finally it's really helpful when we also develop the sense that we belong in a learning community, that the, our colleagues are also learners. They're people who are interested in continuing to improve, continuing to gain new insights, new strategies, and in collaborating both in the learning zone and the performance zone so that we can share transparently, talk about what we're working to improve, what we're struggling with, asking for ideas from the other person, different strategies, giving and receiving feedback. Um, and when we are in that community where people value learning and when people engage in learning behaviors, their social status rate goes up, uh, then that, that, that motivates us to be motivated and effective learners. You know, you noted in your book, Eduardo, we don't learn by doing, but we learn while doing. Um, and you may have already touched on this a little bit, but I was hoping you could elaborate. How can we integrate the learning zone and performance zone? And what goes into learning while doing? And how does it differ from learning by doing? Yeah, so there's this term, this common term called learning by doing, which I think the people who do it well do what I describe as learning while doing. But learning by doing I think it's confusing because it implies that if you just do, you will learn and you will get better. And and that's not true that, you know, the people who uh, first conceived of this idea of experiential learning and studied it and, and were theorists around it, they didn't say you just do and then you'll get better. They actually talked about a cycle and different things that you do in order to get better. So I use this term learning while doing to remind ourselves that we can learn while we do, but that means we need to be deliberate about how we do things in a different way so that we learn along the way. And, and so that involves trying things in a different way, not doing things always, because sometimes we like the idea of improvement, but we don't like the idea of change very much. And the reality is that if we haven't changed, we haven't gotten better. We're the same. In fact, we've probably become less effective because the world has changed while we haven't. And so the more that we understand that we can change and we develop systems and habits to continuously change proactively rather than only when we make mistakes reactively, then the more that we can improve over time. And, and so it, it involves changing things. It involves experimenting. It involves soliciting feedback often. It involves being deliberate about what do I want to improve or what do we want to improve as a team and how are we going to go about it and putting in, in place the habits and structures in order to not just engage in the, in the performance zone, but also in the learning zone along the way. You know, um, you have a wonderful quote uh, from uh, Warren Bennis, and you mentioned it earlier, the, the myth that uh, the leadership myth that leaders are born, and, and he points out that's nonsense. In fact, the opposite is true. Leaders are made rather than born. How important is this insight? And to what extent are great leaders great learners? And the are there any advice or strategies you would give to today's burgeoning leaders? Yeah, so it is really important. Sometimes we think about leaders as what makes a great leader as a natural leader. They either have it or they don't have it. Um, but it's really important to remind ourselves that no matter how good or bad we are as a leader right now, we can always get better and we can always learn, you know, effective leadership strategies. We can practice, we can get feedback from people around us, you know, develop allies. We can say, hey, you know, I would love for you to observe me in this meeting and get me feedback, you know, after the meeting. So those are some of the things we can do. 
And and what's important with leaders, often we tend to think that when we become a leader, we are supposed to act like a know-it-all. Like I have all the answers, I'm sure, of myself. And we might get the sense that if we act like a learner, other people will lose confidence in us or in the organization. But we need to create the coherence, the mental coherence, the mental models within ourselves and within our teams that make us, make us understand that actually feedback and learning behaviors are what makes us stronger. They're going to enable us to better navigate the rapid pace of change and to drive change. And so we can be highly confident that we'll get to success. And these are the behaviors that are going to enable us to get there. What can government agencies do to become more adaptive? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. From waves of new technology, societal upheaval, pandemics, and natural disasters, it seems now the rule rather than the exception, disruption, both digital and physical, is a constant force affecting governments, business, and society. Traditional business continuity and disaster recovery playbooks, born when disruption was the exception, are no longer sufficient. Rather, government executives should plan for continuous disruption and pursue an adaptive approach that rests on a foundation of intrinsic agility. Early this year, Nick Evans, author of the IBM Center Report, A Guide to Adaptive Government, Preparing for Disruption, joined me on the Business of Government Hour to discuss this report and explain adaptive government. Here's an excerpt of our conversation. So, Nick, uh, why is disruption now the rule and not the exception today? And would you describe for us what you mean by disruption and what you mean by business as disrupted? Yes, certainly. So I think uh, we're all familiar with the the term business as usual. And for many decades, we'd, you know, we've felt like we operate business or we operate government. Um, and there's a steady state playing field and we're just operating where um, we have um, operating principles, procedures, processes, and we're just running the business, and it's just business as usual. Well, I think with the state of disruption now, as we look at any type of disruption, whether it's you know business disruption, uh, disruption from pandemics, extreme weather, geopolitical forces, whatever the disruption, we're now seeing it becoming not really the, the exception, but more the norm, right? 
So what it's doing is it's putting pressure on this old notion of doing business as usual. We're now moving into an era where we we really need to think about how do we do business as disrupted in an environment, an external environment, where the business is continually disrupted almost day by day. Excellent. Yeah. And your report, uh, A Guide to Adaptive Government Prepare for Disruption, you know, you you introduce the concept of a government adaptive enterprise. And I was wondering if you could help us. What do you mean by that in the context of your report and your research? Yes, certainly. I, I think the, the notion of adaptability is something that really hasn't gained a lot of attention. So there's been a lot of effort and focus on obviously things like sustainability and resiliency. And there's a very large body of work around that. And these are desirable things that, um, you know, organizations, government, business, um, everyone wants to be sustainable. You want a resilient business, a resilient organization, a resilient infrastructure. But really the hypothesis around the research is that adaptability can be actually the, the cornerstone to achieving these sustainability and resiliency goals, as well as a number of other desirable um, strategic goals for a city or even a country. And so when we think about adaptability, the really interesting thing there is you're dealing with both threats and opportunities. So where resiliency is really a risk management strategy, and it's only dealing with managing risk, when you think about adaptability, we're now dealing with both risk management as a strategy, but also it's a strategy for innovation. So it's really all about how do we maximize the productivity of a city, of a government agency or a business uh, through these ups and downs of disruption. Not just risk management and resiliency, but really innovating both through the threats and the opportunities that the business faces. Yeah, that's an excellent point. You know, you take the concept that you outlined um, in the report and just explained, I, I want to see how you uh, can apply it to government and what is meant by adaptive government and how does this concept or this characteristic of intrinsic agility factor into adaptive government? Sure. So I think the you know the main premise is having adaptability, having an adaptive government or an adaptive enterprise. The reason you do that is because you want to react to change. And it's far better to actually do it with intrinsic agility, bake that ability to change into the organization versus, you know, scratching your head and saying, gee, things have changed in the outside world. Now I need to take a month or six months to figure out how do we react to that. So it's a much more proactive approach. Instead of dealing with change after the fact, what we're doing with intrinsic agility and this, this idea of adaptive government is we're building that ability in, we're engineering it in to the way the organization operates. So it's part of the DNA of the organization. And a, a, you know, a really good example I like to give is the, the military's DEFCON system that's been around for obviously for decades. But you know, if you think about the military and the, the state of readiness, we don't know as a as a as a nation or as the military forces, we don't know what's happening tomorrow in a week's time, in a month's time, or even in the next few minutes. But because we have the, um, the DEFCON system, if you will, or frameworks like that, you have a set of predefined operating procedures and postures that you can jump to very quickly. 
So that's the whole idea of having that readiness built in, pre-rehearsed, pre-trained. Everyone knows the, the role and you can quickly kind of jump to that modality. So that's kind of a, an actual practical example of, you know, putting adaptability into the, into the military in this case. That's an excellent, excellent example of its practical application. You know, Nick, I was I was wondering about the role. What role does digital transformation take in realizing the vision of adaptive government? Yeah, I think it's um it's actually many, you know, many people think digital transformation is kind of the end game, right? We all want to digitally transform and it's the solution to respond to change. Well, actually, if you think about it, transformation is a continuous journey. So that's why we've been on the, you know, the digital transformation bandwagon for probably more than, what, 10 years now. You know, all the, you know, the press, the media, we're always talking about digital transformation. Um, but you're, the trouble with transformation, you're never there because whatever you're transforming to, it's usually the current state and the future's never fixed. So that by the time you transform, things have changed and you've got to transform again. So this, this whole idea is that digital transformation is only the first step, but to really get to the vision of the adaptive government, you've got to bake in this intrinsic agility and use adaptability to solve for change as part of the business or the operating model instead. So it's kind of really the, you know, if you think of um, a future vision where government works really well in all of its people, processes, and technology, step one might be digital transformation, but really step two and the end game, and I think what comes after digital transformation, you know, is is really this this idea of the adaptive government. You you do an, a wonderful and necessary job of distinguishing adaptive systems from resilient systems. And sometimes in the popular parlance, popular imagination, they're, they're used interchangeably. And that's not necessarily a good idea. They're two different concepts. I was hoping you could explain to, for us the difference between them. And more importantly, how do they differ philosophically as well? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, I've, you know, it's, it's interesting. A resilient system is almost completely the opposite of, of an adaptive system. So the resilient system... What it's trying to do is just recover. It goes back to that whole business as usual discussion that we had earlier, you know, business as usual versus business as disrupted. So the resilient system, what it wants to do is recover or regain its authentic form um, as quickly as possible. Um, so the, these kind of resilient systems, they're often very brittle. Um, they're one size fits all. They're trying to restore or maintain the steady state and they have a risk management philosophy. Now, if you take an adaptive system, what it's doing is it wants to um, have that intrinsic agility to continuously maximize value by rapidly reconfiguring itself all the time. So what it's doing is it's continuously optimizing. It's not just a one-time restoration to get back to steady state, but the, the adaptive systems continuously you know, reading the environment and optimizing for ambient conditions. So it's flexible, you know, it has multiple configurations instead of one size fits all. Um, and it's really built on an adapt, uh, innovation philosophy as opposed to a risk management philosophy. Excellent. So uh, Nick, to put adaptive 
government or adaptive enterprise into action. And let's stay within the the government context, if you don't mind. Departments and agencies should take what you have outlined in your report as a phased iterative approach. I was hoping you could tell us more about this approach and how you came up with it. Sure. And it's it's um basically it's a three-phased approach. And I think in the as we go through the discussion today, we'll we'll kind of dive into each one. Um, but basically at the top level, obviously we need to kind of set that strategy and vision. What do we mean by adaptability? You know, let's get that defined, an adaptive first mindset, um, and kind of developing a strategy for adaptability. Step two is to kind of design and build for adaptability. So this is where we pull in those those physical and digital enablers, um, the tools in the toolkit, and start to put them to work, right? And we pull them in and um, start developing these these newer systems. Or maybe we're we're just enhancing an existing system to make it more flexible. And then finally, what we're doing is is really kind of operating with the same mindset. So we're continuously innovating. You know, we're innovating for the unknowns. We have that trend radar and we're detecting not only emerging tech, but we're looking at those pestle forces that are going to come in the years ahead. And then we're, you know, constantly figuring out ways to kind of accelerate the, the innovation cycle. So it's kind of a, a loop, a circle with basically, you know, strategy and vision, design and build, and then operate with continuous innovation. And it's kind of a feedback loop, but all focused on on adaptability. How do we rise above resilience or adaptability to actually thrive on disruption? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Events over the last couple of years have put a renewed emphasis on the importance of being resilient. Leaders and organizations have been walloped by the unforgiving realities of disruption and uncertainty. Often when responding to the unforeseen, doing all we can to operate, meeting expectations, following through on commitments, and delivering on missions, there is little time to reflect, take stock, or gain perspective. When faced with the unexpected, reflex and instinct seem to be what leaders and organizations alike rely on to weather the turbulence. Though these may serve as core components of a solid foundation, they are most certainly not enough. 
Earlier this year, Roger Spitz, chairman of the Disruptive Futures Institute and co-author of The Definitive Guide to Thriving on Disruption, a collection of four volumes, joined me on the Business of Government Hour to explore how agencies can in fact thrive on disruption. Here's a portion of my conversation with Roger. So Roger, how can we make sense of a complex, nonlinear, and ever-increasingly unpredictable world? And, And to that end, would you define for us systematic disruption and sort of deconstruct how it continually evolves? Sure. So there are a few few elements to unpack. And I think the first element to make sense of this kind of you know complex world and unpredictable is really to do with assumptions and not to assume that the world is stable and unpredictable. But we'll we'll come on to that. But that's really the starting point is is reframing how we perceive the world and what is the true reality of the world. In terms of what we call systemic disruption, we can take a step back. I think we have two notable kind of evolutions with disruption. Joseph Schumpeter coined creative disruption, and we call that disruption 1.0. It's the industrial mutation which destroys old paradigms. One example that he gives is very much, you know, after different wars, 1950s reconstruction of certain countries in Europe. That is effectively a phenomenon of creative disruption, destruction, actually, if to use Schumpeter's terms. The most famous one in terms of what disruption is, and that's what probably 99% of the world perceives as disruption, is the Silicon Valley or the technology or Clayton Christensen definition, which is disruptive innovation. And here, there's specific characteristics in terms of how an innovative product might typically be disrupting an old market. And for us, we we label this disruption 2.0. Now, for disruption 3.0, it's systemic. It's omnipresent. In other words, disruption is a constant. It establishes new paradigms. And to your point, these paradigms will evolve. So it's no longer a single event but it's a steady state, which is increasing in its impact and which has spillovers, which can ricochet and turn into something else. So that for us is is what we call um, systemic disruption. And the important takeaway, and to answer your question as to how it evolves, is that there's an increasing cost of relying on the assumptions of business as usual. In other words, there's a rising cost of assuming that the world is predictable. And that's because there's an inverse relationship between predictability and uncertainty. So the greater the uncertainty, the harder it is to predict, the more unknown variables. And that is really the big challenge, is that assumption of reliance on business as usual. And just quickly to wrap up on that question, how does it evolve and how do you kind of think about it? That's where you need to appreciate that the singular focus of isolated or discrete disruption or specific outcomes or fixed outcomes is a wrong way of thinking about it. We need to think about constant possible evolutions. And that's where thinking about multiple futures and scenarios and or, you know, what we call foresight in, in futures fields, that's where you're looking at the next order implications and the multiplicity of possibilities and how to think about those. Very interesting. So what are the constants and drivers of disruption? So we cluster them in five. And before I do that, I'm going to just mention 
why we treat constant and drivers together. And it's partly to do with thinking about life from maybe a Zen Buddhist or Eastern philosophy. If you take in, you know, mujo in Japanese, it means impermanence. And we accept that everything and everyone is constantly changing, which ties in with our idea of disruption being a constant. Um, you know, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, you know, no, no one man ever steps in the same river twice. It's not the same river, for it's not the same man. So this idea of permanence and impermanence and change and constant is an interesting one philosophically to think about. Um, even, you know, people like um, Hermann Hesse in, in Siddhartha and all that. So the link we'll make with the constants and the drivers is actually helpful because if you think of an onion and you're trying to peel what's disruptive, what's certain, what's uncertain, paradoxically, you can get a better handle of of what to sort of prepare for and anticipate. The five clusters of what we call the drivers of disruption are the following. One is new change, and that's basically a combination of, you know, we won't go into them in detail, but, you know, Moore's law, Metcalfe's law, you know, the network effect, the laws of accelerating return, certain technologies, the way they can combine and be cumulative and converge, which makes them self-reinforcing. And we're seeing that in AI a lot. So that combination of factors is creating a new type of change as these are really self-reinforcing in particular. The second driver of disruption, we call the hyper-premium on relevancy. And actually, we use the analogy of the, the Red Queen race from Lewis Carroll, um, the sister book to Alice in Wonderland, Through the Looking Glass, where the queen is speaking to Alice and she says, well, my dear Alice, you're lucky. Where I come from, it takes all the running, or twice the running, to stay in the same place. So the idea here is, like it or not, there's a, there's a hyper-premium on being relevant, whether it's competing with machine, whether it's the democratization of knowledge, whether it's microcycles or the end of trends, whether it's hyper-connectivity and reduced barriers. And, and again, to the neutrality, some of these are positive. If you're you know, 17-year-old girl in um, the south of India and you have a, a smartphone for $30, you can probably get pretty much as much information as a Stanford professor. And again, the reduced barriers to entry mean that, you know, an established company or person can be disrupted very quickly. Likewise, a smaller idea or company or technology can become pervasive quickly. So, so it's, it plays to the duality. So, this, so we have new change. We have the hyper-premium on relevancy. The third disruption driver we call irreversibility, and we're going to talk about this in a second, but the, the main feature and consideration with irreversibility is, you know, as the name indicates, you can reach certain milestones where it becomes impossible or very difficult to reverse. So in that category, we talk about climate, technology, and AI. Um, if you can no longer live on planet Earth, you know, you can choose to do a number of things that might be a little bit too late. So it's it's that element of irreversibility which is which is fundamental. The fourth driver of disruption is systemic paradigm shifts on society, on information and and complexity. The world is is more complex that has a number of features we can we can touch upon a bit later. But those systemic paradigm shifts are a major driver of disruption um, for us. And the final one 
is rapidly approaching new eras. And in that, we have new frontiers, whether it's space, global reshuffling, whether it's you know the possibility of China becoming number one, the splinter net, and, and the world dividing. And then in that rapidly approaching new eras, we also have quantum and artificial life. You know, what are the implications of, of quantum physics or discoveries? What if you can create inorganic life in, you know, really real artificial life? And so those for us are really the way we frame the drivers of disruption. New change, hyper-premium relevancy, irreversibility, systemic paradigm shifts, and these rapidly approaching new eras. We're not there yet, but the... You know, the writing is on the wall. And the final point on this topic is why the link between disruptions and constants and the analogy with impermanence or the the Heraclitus, um, you know, no man ever steps in the same river twice, is because if change is a constant, what's the difference between change and constants? If impermanence is permanent, what's what's permanent or impermanent? It's it's kind of linked. If you know that information is decision making, what's you know, disruption is information, but decision-making being driven by, by these things is a constant and complexity or decentralization or climate risk or renaissance. So that's where one can try and kind of have a frame where we we understand that disruption is a constant. And again, depending on your assumptions of the world, how you prepare for it and respond. Mm-hmm. That's a great um, transition to, uh, you pull together uh, as part of that educational effort the Definitive Guide to Thriving on Disruption, a collection in four volumes. I was hoping you could tell us more about the series and give us a sense of the effort that went into developing each of these volumes. Yeah, th- thanks for asking. It's it, it kind of happened in a funny way. I initially set out to write a book which was focused on maybe the 2.0 to 2.5 disruption as opposed to purely systemic, which we started the conversation with around 3.0. And as the different events unfolded with the world in terms of um, the pandemic, the geopolitical issues, the, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and, and many other things, it became evident that these topics were very interesting to a lot of people. I kept, I got started getting a lot of demand for for talks, for half day programs, for building courses, for executive education, and so for the past few years, we've been developing those and delivering them. But very focused on, you know, a specific client wants a talk or an executive program. We develop, you know, a 15-hour program on whatever, you know, decision-making and uncertainty and what have you. As we were doing that, we were building basically full-fledged educational programs. And then a lot of people were interested also from a personal perspective. You know, when you're looking at boards and companies, at the end of the day, behind that, the individuals who also have their own existential questions. And so... At some point about a year and a half ago, I thought it made sense to, to actually structure those executive programs and courses in a guidebook and to share them with the world. And if no one's interested, that's that's fine. And if people are interested, it's available. And so we we thought that there was enough material and content that it made sense to think about volume one, which is the foundations. How do you reframe and navigate disruption? How do you make sense? of our complex, nonlinear, and unpredictable world. The second volume is fine. We kind of get the, <laughs> the foundations. What, what are the frameworks? What are the essential frameworks for disruption and uncertainty? What practical frameworks can help you or your business stay relevant in the 21st century? And then we, we felt that a lot of demand was really 
individuals wanting to just think about their lives. And so we put together in the volume three, we curated elements which are very focused on your life, beta your life. What is existence in a disruptive world? What does constant change and uncertainty mean to you as an individual? From work to money to longevity to education to the creator economy, all those kind of individual centric topics. And the final one is a business, you know, disruption as a springboard to value creation. What does the unpredictable, complex, and systemic world mean for you? as a business. They're meant to be self-contained, so people can take you know, just one volume, or they can even hopefully look at a particular chapter or a particular page from A to Z or from you know, front to back or back to front. We feel or we hope that it's, it's certainly been designed to be self-contained um, in any way that anyone feels it's useful to do so. You know, disruption, as we talked about, is certain and omnipresent, but you point out Right, whether you like it or not, it creates more agency and possibilities. And maintaining relevance requires, you know, constantly reframing, ideating, and pro- prototyping and testing our choices in 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 regards to the the constant disruption we're we're dealing with. And so, I, I was wondering, how do we rise above resilience and adaptability to thrive in disruption? And can you tell us more? about the six eyes concept that you outline in your book that helps us understand the language of disruption. Yeah, it's a it's a, an aspect we try to not take too lightly because the risk is, you know, there are a lot of books out there about how to be, think about the future and be anticipatory or how to be disruptive. And we really wanted to take an existential and a human step back as well, which is beyond all the things we've talked about, actually, we should thrive on disruption. And on an existential level, the reason is that if everything was predictable and certain, we would have no freedom, agency, and choice. So the reality is that why we are able to thrive on disruption is precisely because Disruption is a constant, and it allows us to create whatever we want of ourselves and the world. And so when we thought about the ingredients to that, we boiled it down to what we call the six eyes, which is if you have intuition and develop it, you avoid preconceptions, you trust yourself, you trust your judgment, that is helpful. If you're inspired, you explore, you're curious, you're imaginative. You ask broad questions. You break from the present. If you're prepared to improvise, you experiment, you make mistakes, but mistakes are gifts. You accept the ambiguity. If you think that nothing is predetermined, you invent your future. That's the invention. And then you have confidence to wander, to fail, and maybe you'll stumble upon the impossible, and you believe you can achieve the impossible. So the six eyes for us, which are intuition, inspiration, imagination, improvisation, invention, impossible. It's really what allows you to have that beginner's mind, to be curious, to accept failures, to be passionate, to to use your agency and to, to really think about the world of change in a way that's not necessarily negative because there's a lot of positive things which come with those features of being, you know, imaginative and inspired and intuitive, et cetera. Well, my last question 
for you, Roger, is around um, maybe giving some advice. And, and where I'm going with this is how can your work help government executives more effectively lead in an era where uncertainty and disruption seem to be the only and singular constants? Yeah, that's really one of the things I'm trying to achieve, which is why I didn't want to just write books for business people, because ultimately, if you don't address it systemically, including policymakers, including government, including all kinds of different things, um, it's potentially wasted. So listen, there are different ways, but I would say to kind of keep it keep it as a as a brief wrap up. One is is government foresight. Okay. There's certain countries which are very good, which have been doing it for decades, Singapore, Canada, um, some of the Scandinavian countries, you know, Finland even has, um, you know, a committee for the future um, and a government foresight group, which is responsible and part of the prime minister's office. And they are tasked to think about things in terms of decades ahead, not just the lifetime of their mandate or the particular political life, they are basically looking at next order implications of change. They are looking at things systemically. So systemically, it really means addressing the endemic short-termism, which comes with a lot of public policy. So for instance, you know, if you think about the levers for change in a systemic world, you know, how do you change the mental models? The, you know, that comes with education and, you know, public policy and governments and agencies have an influence on education. The way you look at the world and see the world and the assumptions you made of education have a big impact on how resilient society will be. The structures, how you're regulating, what governance are you putting in place, what incentives to achieve a particular outcome. You know, we know that incentives determine outcomes. And then how do we monitor what's happening, the patterns and the trends? What is the disclosure? What is being communicated? So not all of these are led by public policy or governments, but ultimately many of these are. And so once you start realizing that you're not looking at quick fixes or point solutions, but look at systemically, that's where you see the very significant role for, for governments and public policy um, beyond just what individuals can do and their family units and, and sort of the commercial organizations. Thanks for joining me on the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, insights on leadership, mindset, and thriving on disruption. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.